and welcome to Fun Fact Collectors. I'm Jadrian. And I'm Brad. Um, this is part two of the episode that was released last week. <laughs> the episode you just listened to. Yes, exactly. Um, our first ever part two. So if you like my episodes, then you're in luck. And if you don't, learn. <laughs> <laughs> But this is fun this week because not only is it kind of like all the information is a surprise for you, it's also <laughs> a surprise for me because I did the notes two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. In like a, oh my God, I can't believe this rabbit hole research uh, brain moment. So this is all new for all of us. So as a reminder, as you know, since you're coming straight from that episode into this episode, we talked about the invention of teenagers. Because we had to talk about the invention of teenagers before we could talk about the history of teenagers, which is what I wanted to talk about. Originally. And I keep forgetting that's the destination here, is the mm -hmm. history of teenagers, history. And not just teenagers in the 50s. <laughs> Teens through the ages. Uh, yes, teenagers were invented in the 50s uh, because capitalism. That's the TLDR for last episode. So I have a couple of caveats on this episode. Because I have tried to cover teens across the world, but I ran into some difficulties when researching this, which we will discuss. Um, and I also want to mention that I will be using terminology like boys and girls, men and women, because for much of history, uh, roles were broadly defined in this way and divided in this way. We are talking about the social roles that construct gender as we know it. So with that caveat, let's get into the history of teenagers because there's a lot of information here. We have to cover the entire history of humanity. So starting with early homo sapiens. <gasps> 200,000 years ago. Well, not quite that far. Okay. So basically, we're starting with homo sapiens in America because of some very specific research that was done. But we had believed that humans did not come to America until the end of the last ice age, which was approximately 15,000 years ago. And we, our understanding was that Siberian hunter-gatherers left Asia and crossed the land that is now where the Bering Strait is. But in 2021, a discovery was made where they found preserved human footprints in White Sands, New Mexico. So the humans would walk close to the lakes and then would leave footprints in the damp ground, but the footprints would harden and then be covered by layers of sand and ditch grass seed. And so carbon dating the ditch grass seed that's above and then below the footprints show that they were actually made between 21,000 and 23,000 years ago. That's neat. That's new information to me. Yeah, 2021. And yeah. as we all know, it's still mentally 2020 for me. Um, so <laughs> Thanks that's the future. Exciting. So it's unclear how they traveled to New Mexico, because at that time, the flip. last... Well, okay, sure. <laughs> but at that time, the last Ice Age was worsening. So their survival would have been intense. But the reason that we're talking about it is because most of these footprints that they found were made by adolescents. So 
This is also in line with other ancient footprints that they found across the world. They tend to be from young adults, teens, and children, while we have evidence that older adults would stay still so that they're not wasting their energy. So as we all know, you have children so that they can go into the family business. It's just that in this case, the family business would have been like tracking and hunting giant sloths, uh, mammoths, and dire wolves. They were basically uh, non-skilled laborers for hunting groups who would kind of be uh, taught how to do what the hunters were doing and then learn from there. Can we just... uh, I'm curious why you chose to use the word non-skilled laborers there. Well, I chose to use it as compared to um, the skills they were learning. Like at the beginning of the process, they would not be skilled in hunting Uh, and tracking. But at the end of the process, they would be skilled. So in this context, they are unskilled labor. Apprentices. Because they're like nine. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm not talking about unskilled labor the way that we talk about it in capitalism today. Because boy, howdy, is that some nonsense. I got you. I got you. All right. So moving from the early Homo sapiens, we're going to go into the ancient world, which I have broadly defined as ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, Mesopotamia, and ancient ancient Asia. (laughs) So I kind of started breaking things down into uh, categories for each of these time periods because there is just so much information, as you can imagine, because the history of teens through the ages is essentially the history of children and adults through the ages. And that's just all of history. But starting with education, in Egypt, children from wealthy backgrounds would receive formal education. But in Greece, education was common for children, but only wealthy teenagers would receive a secondary education. And that education would be in rhetoric, science, philosophy, Uh, basically Arts 1000, Uh, the people who were enslaved or were extremely poor didn't receive education. So something that I found really interesting was that, and I mean, I I feel like we kind of know this, like ancient Greece, we've got the Olympics and everything, but fitness was a central part of the education system, kind of the same way that it is today. I guess, I don't know if you'd say it's a central part, but it's definitely like a part of the education system. So in particular, gymnastics, and then also running, jumping, swimming, throwing, wrestling, and weightlifting. And this was because having education or having having fitness be part of the education system helps develop what, Brad? Can you guess? Uh combat skills or the ability to work the fields (laughs) soldiers we need to be mass producing crank our teenagers into soldiers join the army when you're 18 here you go but go die for some oil kids not for girls though (laughs) girls were excluded from training and were actually forbidden from participating in any athletic competitions including the olympics per the documentary mulan we're still in greece (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a, a, a Grecian, Grecian Mulan story. Well, the exception to this rule was in Sparta, which we know from the movie 300, uh, where women were expected to be very physically fit. And why were they expected to be very physically fit, Brad? Uh, not to be soldiers. Where did the soldiers what... come from? 
Well, I suppose, yeah. It's like, what's the manliest thing you can do? Birth a soldier. Exactly. So that's why women were expected to be fit in Spartan society. But girls in Greece were prepared for marriage their whole lives. They were taught domestic trades within the household, like cooking, cleaning, but also uh, like weaving. And textile production was one of the most profitable skills that a female could have. Mm, so slaves who had textile production skills could be sold to work for wealthier families and were highly valued. They Girls were required to help with household work or the family business. Young boys were allowed to go play. But girls were expected to be productive from a very young age and were confined to domestic duties. Thanks, patriarchy. Thanks, patriarchy. Barbie would be ashamed of you. Wealthy girls were often forbidden from leaving the house except for religious ceremonies or to visit with other women and were required to be chaperoned by slaves. And this was so that we could ensure that the soldiers that these women would eventually start birthing uh, had the correct paternity, according to the patriarchy. But, and I, I, I've mentioned slaves here a couple of times, and I had mentioned, um, like, children living in poverty in their education. And one of the things that I thought was, I mean, it's kind of sad, but it's also interesting, is how hard it was to find information about um, people who, not even just people, but like non-adults, like children and adolescents who were not part of this. I mean, I hesitate to use the word middle class because that's not, I don't know, that's a modern invention, but like this kind of like medium surviving to like wealthy class. They don't talk, all of the research papers don't talk at all about like, well, women are forbidden from leaving the house except to go to the stuff and they have to be chaperoned by slaves. Well, who the slaves chaperoning them didn't just appear on this planet as adults. They also had childhoods and adolescence, and I'm sure they looked very, very yeah. different. Um, but that was one of the kind of research issues that I came across while I was doing this. Well, I feel like it's probably a little bit like, you know, if you're a, a high flouting, um, you know, Athenian noble person right you don't want to know how the hot dog's made you don't want to know where the slave comes from it's just uh, they're really good at sewing um, well and also um and we'll talk about this later too because i think as we've talked about before uh slavery in the ancient world uh has many echoes of slavery in the less ancient world mm -hmm. and i think that's also very true where uh if you have children who are slaves who grow up into enslaved adults they don't have the education they can't read and write and even if they can read and write, who's writing down their stories? Yeah, and totally and different to modern North America, where poor, impoverished families have children that are born to poor, impoverished families <laughs> and don't get education and then go on to also uh, be wage slaves yeah. and go on to birth their own. Thank God we got rid of slavery, right? Well, it also... It's just kind of a take. <laughs> I think it's... Um, I think it's borderline. I think it's fine and uh, we'll leave it in. We'll but... I, even talking about like you then get into the difference, um, the the endurance of like written history versus oral tradition, where slaves in ancient Greece 
likely had some kind of oral tradition that just hasn't carried through to modern day. And we know that slaves from North America, you know, a hundred years ago also had oral tradition that they brought with them down through their family generations. And uh, luckily there is like a concerted effort, not even luckily, uh, cause luck has nothing to do with it. There is a concerted effort by people who care to ensure that like these histories continue beyond uh and aren't aren't lost to time like the oral histories of the slaves in ancient egypt anyway that's my whole side rant um but poorer families uh girls from poorer families would of course leave the house oh she's trying you can't see this because just out of frame i have my plate here fries and she just put her paw up (gasps) she's trying to steal my fries (gasps) wait it's because she's um parlemagne Mm-hmm. Parliament deserves Parliament gets no fries. She needs tribute. She was, she was, I swear to God, her one brain cell was this close to try to jump through the screen the summer oh, today. Oh no. She's been such a little schnoob. Oh no, she deserves fries. Mm. Anyway, that's the cat. She also thing. hates slavery. <laughs> so, okay, so wealthy girls forbidden from leaving the house. Poor girls. Naughty girls forbidden from fries. <laughs> Poor girls. <laughs> Of course, they had to leave the house because they got to go work Mm -hmm. in the fields or fetch water. And depending on their social status, they could be taught to either like plow fields and tend animals or you could have girls who are taught instruments and how to read and write. So, for example, Sappho, who we love, received an education and went on to write poetry, which endures to today and is the subject of fantastic uh, Reddit subreddits. (laughs) (laughs) So... The exception to this, and the exception that continues to appear throughout history, is religious service. So female deities were depicted, and some young girls could be initiated into priestesshood, which had great power and influence. So basically, your options were, especially like if you if you were wealthy, you're going to get married. That's that's your job. Get married and pop out soldiers. If you're poor, you are working in some capacity. You may have some level of independent or uh, means to earn money through like textile manufacturing, or you could learn to read and write and kind of live in this separate but parallel society of religious service where you get to have, you know, power and influence as long as you're within those confines. Well, moving from ancient Greece to ancient China. Now, once again, I did not look up how to say any of these words, which is particularly embarrassing given that I am, in fact, a Chinese person. But I am not an ancient Chinese person, and therefore (laughs) we'll just let that one slide. So the Qin Dynasty? Q-U-I-N? Qin Dynasty? Qin Dynasty? I want to say Qin. Listen, it's not my answer for disgracing, so. <laughs> dishonor on you, dishonor on your cow, dishonor on your whole family. Sounds like chin. Oh, and then the second word they're telling me how to pronounce is the word dynasty. So it's the chin dynasty. Okay. And Han times, 
established merit-based civil service, where they increased educational and occupational opportunities for boys as they moved up the social ladder. So Han Confucianism stressed early education and the establishment of a public school system for boys only. Public school system, but only if you have the correct genitalia. Um, and this is to prepare them for civil service. So they were especially concerned with educating the boys who would come to power and take the throne so that they would be educated and have critical thinking skills to govern wisely. Imagine what a concept. What a crazy idea. What It's just uh, way back in ancient China, they figured it out and then we forgot all of it. What year's the Qin Dynasty? Uh, two. 221-ish BC. So it's not as ancient as we've got like our ancient Greeks, etc. That is close. I think that's pretty, yeah, Wikipedia says for five centuries until 221 BC. Okay. So yeah. All right, we're close-ish. So boys are learning how to be good civil servants. Echoes of that in our school system today. And women are instructed in child rearing and also, they are educated just enough so that they are qualified to educate their own young children. Because women are the ones who are greatly responsible for the early education of children, which was considered very, very important. So they received instruction in, sorry, the girls who would be teaching this received instruction for the moral, intellectual, and professional development of their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons, not for their own sake. Women would be educated about their quote-unquote proper role in society due to anxiety over the influence that they could have in politics. So they were taught chastity and obedience because otherwise, what do you have? I don't know, maybe some Anne Boleyn, like what we've talked about before, who has like political aspirations and isn't afraid to use yeah, You can't have your own opinions. No. You can't have dreams. Well, and it's interesting um, to see... Like, again, I feel like today the stereotype we have of, like, the Chinese education system is that everything is very, um, it's very rigid and it's very uh, well designed and designed to, there's like, there's no, there's no leeway. There's one right way to do things and yeah. that's how you do it. That's how you be a good child, a good grandchild. Um, and it's so that you can grow up and continue the society that exists. And that goes all the way back to the BC times. So we've talked a couple of times about military service. So as we know, that is the only purpose for educating your children. In Greece, young men aged 18 to 20-ish were called ephibus, which meant that they had reached puberty. And at that point, they underwent two years of military, military training. So at the end of year one, they received a sword and shield from the state and took their oath. And they were during this time that they were doing this training, they were exempt from civic duties, but they were also deprived of most of their civic rights. So, like, you don't have to pay taxes, but you also can't vote. <laughs> it's like you're just temporarily only a soldier. Yes. This is all you are. You're just a weapon of the state for the next two years. Deal with it. Yeah. So by 3rd century BCE, this was reduced to one year and it was no longer compulsory. And eventually it became uh, a kind of education for mm -hmm. only the wealthy classes. And the curriculum expanded from just like military teachings to include philosophy philosophy and literary literary 
literary studies really putting that english degree to use aren't you i paid for it i'm still paying for it and i'm gonna use it by golly <laughs> in rome everyone in the empire except for the lowest social class could join the army education was designed to prepare young men for the military but they received pay for their service so i mean man they're doing great in china there was widespread government registration, taxing, and labor military service that was determined by each household according to the age and gender of family members. So like we see in the conscription in Mulan, when the Huns invade China, they have like all the family names and each family has to put forward however many sons and blah, 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 etc. Marriage, we've also talked about a little bit. Uh, in Greece, obedience was the name of the game. The father is the head of the house and literally the owner of children. When the daughter would reach puberty, the father would arrange marriage for her with or without her mother's consent. And a dowry, which would include things like property, would be given to the groom's family, while bride wealth would be paid to the bride's family based on her beauty, fertility, and skills to ensure that the family she was leaving was compensated for her economic value. So then, then why do they have to give a dowry? It's like, hey, here's something we're giving you in exchange. Like, it's just, it's like, you're already selling your daughter. Why are you also giving something else of value in this trade deal? Well, I think the idea is that you're kind of on one hand, like getting this guy to take your daughter off your hands. So you're giving him like the, the, the property thing was the thing that I saw coming up. Like they would mm. give land for the dowry or um, would give animals like things that were to help like the young couple kind of get set okay. up in the world. Whereas bride wealth would be like literal compensation for the fact that like your daughter helped take care of the household and maybe she had uh, textile manufacturing mm -hmm. skills. And so you're losing access okay. to those. I don't want to say that I'm coming out in defense of dowries and bride wealth, just that I did read the Wikipedia page about them. And new wives were, of course, expected to have children right away because we got to start popping out all those soldiers for the next generation. In Mesopotamia, arranged marriages were also common. They would have bridal auctions, which were exactly what they sound like. It's an auction to sell teen girls to the highest bidder. And then a contract that, would be that's, made. That's just sex trafficking. Yeah, it's not good, I would say. Contracts would be made between the father of the girl and the future husband. And there were penalties written into the marriage contracts for if the girl didn't behave. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I... That's bad, it's bad, it's bad. I don't know what else to say. My dad, for years, has been joking that Chris has to give him, like, pigs and cows for marrying me. And I was like, sir, I have not lived in your household for, like, a decade now. But then, by the same token, your father would have to guarantee your performance. And That's that correct. you won't, won't be a, 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 I don't know, I want to say sullen wench. I don't know if that, if that vibes. <laughs> yeah. And as we all know, I simply cannot be. <laughs> so I want to talk about um, like the coming of age in China. We kind of talked about like the uh, compulsory military service mm -hmm. in 
uh, Greece when you reached a certain age. So in China, there were specific rituals. So males, when they reached age 20, would have what is called the Guan Li, which is a capping ceremony. So basically, this boy's family would choose a lucky day and would invite a bunch of guests. And then the boy would bathe, do his hair in a specific way, and then wait in a room. The father would give a speech and the boy would come out and be like, hello, it's me. (laughs) And then the master would wash his hands, put the futon, which is the head cap, on the boy. And then the boy would go back into the room, change into a different costume that matched the color of the head cap, (laughs) and then would come back out again and be like, it's me. I've I've aged. (laughs) And then the master would give the boy a different hat. And then the boy would go back into the other room and change into a darker colored costume that is for adult men that matched the new hat. And then he would come out and then, bam, you're a man. Uh, I just don't get why there are three costumes or why there are two costume changes, three costumes. It seems like redundant. I am sure that there is a lot of (laughs) cultural symbolism, but what it sounds like is like, you know, when you're shopping for clothes with your mom. And she's like, go try this on in the fitting room. And then she makes you come out and judges you and then makes you go back in and try other things on. And you're just tired, but you were promised a popsicle. (laughs) That's how this feels to me. Fair enough. So females, in contrast, uh, instead of age 20, their ceremony happens at age 15. Because, of course, we consider women adults before we consider boys adults. Classic. Um, Classic. So they would have what's isn't called that the- isn't that vaguely like I don't think those, I don't think fifteen and twenty lab with it, but I mean, doesn't the science kind of back that? Like, don't women yeah, mature well, the science sooner? That we talked about in the last episode was like yes, like some girls, particularly when we're talking about like the development of adult sexual characteristics and like mm-hmm. reproductive systems, that happens for girls much earlier than it happens for boys Mm -hmm. but i think it's something that we've been doing for so long like the the concept that girls mature earlier than boys has been such a um pervasive idea for so long that i don't have the information to say how much of that is based on you know the science and biology and psychology and mm-hmm. how much like the nature and how much of that is based on the nurture of like girls are not allowed to play in ancient yeah. Greece. Girls must be productive in the household and doing chores and like taking care of their younger siblings. Boys can go play and then go play with sticks and then join the military. Well, yeah, yeah. They're going to they're gonna go die in some war in, in three or four years. Give them a chance. Come on now. Well, I mean, the girls are probably going to die in childbirth when they're like 14. So, <sighs> yeah, you know. Loses. Okay, anyway. So back to the, the coming of age ceremony for Chinese girls, because it sounds really pretty. So for girls from noble families, they would do a Li ceremony, which is a hairpinning ceremony. Hmm. So it was either held when they turned 15 or when they were engaged, became engaged. But it would sometimes be postponed until later on the wedding day. But basically what they do is they would tie the hair in a bun up on top of their head. And then a highly respected married female relative would be kind of like the the ceremony director mm-hmm. and would pin a specific bamboo hairpin into their hair, which was very cute. I also looked at India and there was a lot of really interesting stuff about women in ancient India, but it wasn't specifically speaking to teens 
and was way too much to include in this episode. But we're going to have to come back to that because Indian history is fascinating. Uh, well, now we get to move on into their next grouping of time periods, which is the Middle Ages slash early modern slash Renaissance. Yeah, so we're almost to the point of the 1989 release of the Belgian techno anthem, Pump Up the Jam. <laughs> Not quite. That is a reference to Kunk on Earth for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, I did message Brad. <laughs> what not even a week ago no, it was like friday like, night you were like hey like, you should watch kunk on earth on netflix and then like two hours later i was like i'm done yeah well no i said you should watch kunk on earth on netflix and then you didn't say anything and then i said you know how you want me to how much you want me to watch mm. f1 this is that and then the second yes. the next message i got was i finished it all <laughs> and you're um, like no spoilers on episode three no spoilers yeah i'm still only on episode <laughs> and three. then it's like pathetic yeah so education in Europe in the, you know, what we used to call the Dark Ages, and now we don't call the Dark Ages, but then like from there a little ways forwards. So formal education was pretty rare. Most teenagers worked instead of or in addition to receiving education, and peasant level teenagers were key to the family's income. Because they were able to do things like care for younger children and take care of simple household tasks. The girls would help their mother tend the garden, making and mending clothes, churning butter, brewing beer. Beer brewing was a very important role for women and teenage girls, um, as well as cooking. And then boys would help in the field. And the older they got, the more difficult the tasks they would be assigned to and the greater their workload would be. So as a paid servant in another household, they could contribute to the family's income while at the same time stop using the family's resources. So you would basically like say, go off into the world, find a job. They would start often uh, at like a very low level in the house, like the Mm -hmm. lowest like kitchen wench or whatever. And then kind of like work their way up as they age. So it could be part-time work or like day labor, or it could involve living with the employer potentially in a totally different area than where you're Mm -hmm. from. Um, But it also included things like shop servants, uh, craft assistants, laborers, and then household servants. And often siblings would be hired at the same time for different jobs or would be hired one after the other as the older sibling aged out of a role, the younger sibling would then fill that role and it would kind of like go up and up and up. Mm. And this was often a temporary stage because it allowed teenagers to save money and then develop skills that would serve them when they entered society as an adult and commonly began around age 10 or 12, but occasionally it would start younger. There was a huge amount of risk for servants because there was a lot that an employer could do if like the servant stole or ran away or they just didn't like them for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. But there was very little recourse for the servant if the employer was abusive or failed to uphold their side of the contract. (laughs) Workers' rights. (laughs) Mm. And as you can imagine, well, I mean, at this point, we still have active child labor Mm -hmm. like there's not even child labor laws let alone other labor laws but this is especially dangerous for teen girls but that said some relationships that were developed 
were really, really highly valued. So servants who would start low in the household as like a young teen or a child would work their way up the ranks and could end up working for a family for their entire life and become like a really valued, trusted, cherished member of the family. Uh, if you weren't working in a household for service, you could be uh, undertaking an apprenticeship or mm-hmm. a skilled trade, which was typically like silk making, weaving, metalworking, brewing, winemaking, cloth making, milling, baking, blacksmithing. Oh, 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 fun fact. Yeah. Because um, in Newfoundland, there was a ton of millers around. And I, I was pretty sure. Millers, the little moth boys. <laughs> I, I was pretty sure that millers were moths, which they are. Um, there was a, a specific flavor of moth in Europe that got colloquially called the miller. And then, of course, in North America, we've applied it to several different ones. But they're called millers because their their wing scales are so fragile that they flake off on contact and kind of look like like a flowery powder residue, much like a miller the profession might have. Interesting, but also gross. <laughs> yeah, so that's... The youngins are letting the millers in. <laughs> you ever see that meme? It's like, it's like old man or like like dad 911. And it's like, hello, dad 911, what's your emergency? It's like, the door is open. Bye, Jesus, do you let the millers in? That was... That was what I was referencing. Yeah. And I need you to know that every time that there is a Miller in my house, we send that back and forth. <laughs> That's how we inform each other. Like, There's a Miller in the bedroom. Send the meat. Because <laughs> um, I, I have... All right. We're going to take a brief tangent into why I am the way that I am, at least in part, is... One time when I was like somewhere between the ages of like, I don't know, eight and 11, a young teenager, if you will, by history standards, um, I was in my room and there was a moth in there and I don't like killing bugs. So I went upstairs and I was like, mom, come kill this moth. And then she was like, okay. And she came downstairs. But by the time she came downstairs, we didn't know where it went. So I got in bed with the lights off and I stretched my arms down under the covers and something moved under <laughs> my hand. And from this day forward, I like to admire moths from a respectful distance. I do not want them to touch me. Anyway, so all of these skilled trades, you can learn them informally by observing and assisting your parents, which would typically be in a rural setting. Or you could become a formal apprentice, typically in a more urban setting, where you actually paid to learn from a skilled master. And the master would also take on a parental role of providing for the needs and moral guidance in addition to actually teaching the like trade skills. So both boys and girls could be apprentices, although it was mostly boys. And it would differ the gender like balance based on the type of trade. So for example, it was very common for lace makers in France to be women, Mm -hmm. but in some places you would also have female butchers, blacksmiths, and millers. Interesting. And the apprentices weren't paid, but they did typically receive room, board, and clothing. Hey man, free education? No, no, you're paying for it. You pay the master for it. Yeah. Less sick of a deal. Yes. Um, Well, I suppose it is just university, isn't it? Yeah still paying for that (laughs) English degree. Um, The length depended on the trade and on the master because for the master, you're getting paid and you're getting what is basically like cheap labor. So some masters who were meanie pants would like 
draw the apprenticeship out super long so that they could keep, you know, using the apprentice. Yeah. Um, seven years was the average, though. So about your average PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a belief that it was easier for a stranger to raise and control an unruly teen than it was for a parent. So for some parents, if you had like a misbehaving teenager and you had the money to afford to pay for an apprenticeship, you would kick them out to the apprentice. And then the idea is like, well, this apprentice can whip them or the uh, Hmm. master can whip them in the shape. Um, And then a very small minority of teenagers also either joined the church or went to university. Uh, Because universities are old as... Old as dirt. So, leisure time. Teens would have evening (laughs) recreation. No, it did, but mostly just the teenagers. They would have evening recreation or holidays like Saints Days. And they would play games like marbles and tennis. Have wrestling matches. Sorry, you're saying we had dark age tennis? Yeah. Um, well, this is like Middle Ages moving into like early modern and the Renaissance. They would have wrestling matches, play football. They would gamble, which was called dicing, which I think is very cute. Um, and teens and preteens would often be jockeys for horse racing because they were smaller and lighter weight. For the upper class, leisure time included things like hunting, falconry, and archery. So where the lower class would be penalized for hunting for food, the upper class would hunt for sport. And that was a okay. LOL. There was also this really fun thing um, called the Abbeys de Jeunesse or translates to Abbeys of Misrule, which would be like a carnival where the young people would just go hallooing through the streets and they would elect a king of the youth each year and just like, go wild in but yeah. sorry I, I i have the tennis facts to bring all in right now. tennis facts history of tennis most historians believe that tennis originated in the monastic cloisters of northern france in the 12th century but the ball was struck with the palm of the hand hence the name jeu de palm game of the palm it was not until the 16th century that rackets came into use and the game began to be called tennis it was popular in england and france and henry the eighth of england was enthusiastic of the game great that is about the time period we're talking yeah. about i said middle ages through yeah. to like early modern i guess I'm, I'm picturing like king arthur being like ah sure has been a great day of roundtabling anyway off to bat little tennis around so what you're telling me is you're picturing king arthur which by the way is a fictional person yeah, yeah. in in like a little white tennis skirt like <laughs> I didn't ready say skirt. to <laughs> like a little white tennis kilt <laughs> yeah there we go tennis kilt yeah very cute <laughs> tennis skirt no that would actually be yes (laughs) that would actually be like very fashionable today Mm. um so marriage uh in parts of germany switzerland and scandinavia some sexual contact between men and women who were in their late teens was okay so do you know what bundling is like with sticks well, it's simpler sticks involved. I, I, I can't. Um, I don't know what this. If you're saying there's a sex act called bundling, I can't. No, I don't know what because it is. Oh, okay. this is a clean podcast for people with children or people who are children inside, like <laughs> myself. But I have heard of this term because of um, some like kind of 
I don't even know what you would call it. Maybe like some like fundamentalist, uh, like Christian or like, I don't know, people who are like into the the alternative brand Christianity still do this like leading up in the last century and like today. But here's what bundling is. Bundling is also called night courting. A boy <laughs> would come to the girls. Oh, oh. Yes, I do know what this is, but carry okay. on. The boy would come to the girl's family's house and he is allowed to stay the night with her in her bed. They are both clothed. Scandalous. Sometimes the boy No, no, this is a okay. No, this I is know, like supervised. Sometimes the boy would be required to sleep on top of the covers or on the other side of a wooden board that was placed down the center of the bed to separate them and it didn't require betrothal or marriage it would just be like oh well i kind of want to night court this girl i guess i'm gonna go have like a weird supervised sleepover at her house and then um i was gonna say wham bam thank you ma'am but not that well didn't did they also get tied up too uh no not in the what i was reading were you reading a different type of website i thought they got tied up I don't think anybody got tied up. Hmm. I think you're thinking of something different. Uh, here's Night Court, the 2023 TV series. Interesting. Um, <laughs> canon law says that girls as young as 12 could marry, but it was uncommon unless she was a noble or an heiress. <laughs> so if she's 12 and she got money, she's up for marriageable grabs, apparently. Um... I wanted to cover more about Asia because, as you know, as I've already mentioned, I am, in fact, Asian. But it was very difficult to find information in the language that I read, which is English. So I have a little bit of information for you about ancient Japan. Uh, serving girls were mostly wandering girls whose families had been displaced by the war. Sometimes they would offer sexual services for money, but some would achieve better education by entertaining at high class social gatherings. So later in the Middle Ages period, uh, emphasis on traditional art forms and aesthetic ideals later developed into the profession of geisha which was basically 1750s, 1800s forward. So geisha would be skilled dancers, entertainers, and hosts. Original geishas were often men, but then female teenagers called orodiko, no, odoriko, which are translates to dancing girls, were developed, trained, and hired as like non-sexual dancers for hires or musical entertainers. So the idea um, like host culture is very important in uh the geisha profession and the idea it's is that i think it's something that like the western world struggles to understand but the idea is that they're not there to be sexual or sexualized they are there to like facilitate everybody having a good time and that includes music entertainment they were educated in like conversation educated in um you know like the newest literature, the newest trends, the newest music, so that they could then uh, kind of entertain with, like, dignity and grace. And I thought that that was a really interesting way for a girl to make her way in the world. 
But now we're getting into the industrial and post-industrial times, mm -hmm. which are probably the closest to our teenage experiences, as we discussed in episode one. Mm -hmm. um, I have fond memories of the coal mine as a child. <laughs> so education. In 1820, the literacy rates were about 53%. Upper class teens were educated at home with masters or governesses or by their parents. And lower class teens, if educated at all, were educated by parents or churches. Boys would learn things like Latin and then would later go on to get like a college degree or would go on a grand tour which I feel like you would be very into because mm -hmm. basically what it is, is you take a couple of years, you travel through this like planned out plotted situation accompanied by a tutor who is like, all right, now we're at the Colosseum. Let me tell you about the history of ancient Rome. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what we're doing to people right now? We are. I guess if you were listening to this podcast while you were at the Colosseum, then yes, you might be kind of having that experience. Um, but I assume that these tutors are probably making bank, mm. and we are, in fact, not making bank. Speak for yourself. I can't stop making money off of Powerade. So they would go on their <laughs> grand tour. Um, because only... And this comes up in Bridgerton, actually. If you are listening to, like, I don't know if, if any of you people out there who aren't Brad watch Bridgerton or have read the books Colin one of the sons goes on like a grand tour and that's what he's doing this is his formal education he goes on a tour throughout you know primarily Europe I assume but like mm -hmm. across the world and learns because only the eldest son would inherit younger sons would need to obtain <laughs> undertake a profession <laughs> they have to YOLO it so if you were Richie Rich you could be an officer, which is military service, but you purchased your rank mm -hmm. with your dollary dues. You could join the church, which required a degree. Uh, you could become a lawyer or a barrister, but that was typically for like middle class men. We're going down the tiers of mm -hmm. like respectability officer. And then you got the church underneath of that lawyer and or you could become a doctor, which was the least noble. Um, doctors were considered to be like kind of scummy for a long yeah, kind time of icky, gross yeah and uh being a doctor involved apprenticing either formally or informally although i will say based on my sawbones listening which of course i'm an expert in now <laughs> doctors also like there's no licensing you can do whatever you want you could like go to a town in the middle of america and be like i'm a doctor now bring me your money and then just like give people brandy and then that was like peak doctoring <laughs> so girls would learn things like the domestic arts religion music dancing languages embroidery and running a household the domestic art sounds like it should be a class at hogwarts that it does but i mean i guess if you had like early hogwarts as like a finishing school for ladies mm -hmm. Because I assume it means things like, um, again, like textile manufacturing. Maybe not like weaving your own stuff, but yeah. like making clothing. Yeah, home ec. Yeah. Uh, did you take home ec? No. I don't think it was a course we had. I feel like um, we had a small like home ec development in our broadly named social development class. Hmm. I had, because my school was quite a bit larger than yours. In fact, I would say my school was what? Significantly. A hundred times the size of Probably. yours. Um, and yeah. we definitely no. had... What was your grad class? 400? 
411. Okay, so like 10 times. 40. Oh, yeah. I'm, I moved to zero. 10 <laughs> times bigger. Um, we had like home ec flavored classes, but I don't think any of them were called home ec. We would have like a, like, I think we actually had a financial planning and literacy class, which I super should have taken. That's and we what have you like have a, me for. A kitchen, kitchen cooking class, which was kind of cool because your project would be like you ran a cafe and the food was actually really good and cheap. Nice. Um, and I don't think anybody got like food poisoning as far <laughs> as I remember. So back to Japan. Uh, by the late 1860s, there was a system that was established that was striving for equality in education for all, because this was thought to be how you how you modernize. Amazing. Like, just totally novel idea. idea. Prior to this, low-class education was limited to very practical subjects. So you would learn, like, reading, writing, arithmetic. But in 1872, elementary school was made compulsory. So then there were elementary schools, middle schools, and then what were called normal schools, which was like a high school type thing. Mm -hmm. And then imperial universities were established by law. I'm sorry, this is like the Commonwealth? In Britain? Japan. Oh, Japan. Sorry. We're in Japan. Sorry. Yeah. Britain don't know what they're doing. They got doctors <laughs> who are like, hello, I'm a doctor. I have no experience and I have some brandy. Um, in Japan, they're like, we have a public education system because the way to the future is to educate everybody, not just the richy riches. So education was geared towards modernization and producing useful, loyal citizens. Well, you know why Japan had to modernize so aggressively then, eh? Useful, loyal citizens. Japan was so isolationist for a long, long time. I think it's basically the U.S. shows up one day and they're like, hey, do you want to trade? And Japan's like, no, we're kind of, we like doing our own thing. U.S. like threateningly (laughs) pulls out a gun and they're like, do you want to trade? And Japan's like, Like, I guess. (laughs) Um, So in terms of work, the working class teenager was definitely already working by age 12. They were either working in a factory, domestic service, or part of an agricultural gang, which is what they were called, or trade, like millinery or being a barmaid. Child labor was very, very common. Poor children as young as four would work full-time Oof. jobs under dangerous conditions. I don't trust a four-year-old to blow their nose. Yeah. These four-year-olds built different. <laughs> like, not good, but also kind of impressive. Like, I don't know. They got skills. I gotta I got wonder. It's like, how much of, like, child mortality back then was just, like, the health conditions of, like, disease and stuff? And how much was, yeah, you're expecting a four-year-old to run machinery. You shouldn't be surprised when they get sucked in. Well, I can tell you, uh, because we're actually getting to child labor laws. Nice. So children would work in factories, mines, or as chimney sweeps. Uh, They were paid very little or worked for their room and board. And they were cheap to hire or could do jobs that adults were too large to do, like chimney sweeps. And I know from true crime podcasts (laughs) that children would get stuck in chimneys and they would just leave them there and they would just die. And they'd wall the chimney up and it'd be like, ah, that's too bad. I mean, I don't think this was happening every other week. That but doesn't like, seem it cost effective. Uncommon. Well, I mean, you're only paying them like, you know, pennies. No, I, just, I always mean like to wall the chimney up. Like what, you're going to build a new chimney then? Ah, nah, don't worry <laughs> about it. 
So in the early 1800s, 50% of the workers in British factories were under the age of 14. Uh, in 1870, over 750,000 children under the age of 15 were working. They received little to no education. And children in coal mines, like you said, as mm. you were a child, you worked <laughs> in a coal mine, as we all know. Um, they often worked from 4 a.m. until 5 p.m. And some ch child workers would work all day pulling wagons of coal up small tunnels that were just a few feet tall. Because if you only have child workers, you don't have to make the mine shafts as big. <sighs> yeah. Many young girls worked in match factories where the harsh chemicals would cause them to lose their teeth. But good news... The first child labor laws were established in 1833 in Britain and made it illegal for children under the age of nine to work. So that is kind of where we start to see the demarcation between child versus like teen adult. Um, we talked about coming of age rituals earlier and I've got some more for you, but only for the richy riches as we know again. So upper class noble girls who were out in society uh, around the age of 18 meant that they had had their debut with the queen. <laughs> this is where I started with this research oh, because no. I was watching Bridgerton and reading Pride and Prejudice. Remember I started the last episode saying I was no. like, <laughs> okay, well in Pride and Prejudice, there's all these references. I find it really interesting to read books that were written a long time ago and try and note up the references to things that the author clearly didn't feel needed to be explained because mm -hmm. it was just so widely accepted. Okay. And I think it'll be interesting to look back from the future on our time at the things that we talk about that we don't explain because we assume everybody knows what it means. But things like, um, you know, references to being like, oh, make sure you're six feet away. Like <laughs> how long until that reference is no longer part of um, part of slang that everyone just knows what it means. So anyway, yeah. the thing that I was picking up on in Pride and Prejudice was they talk about how um, Jane was so beautiful. Somebody they thought somebody would make an offer for marriage for her, and she wasn't even sixteen yet. Um, same thing, Lydia was married and she wasn't even sixteen. Lizzie uh, gets asked how old she is, and she's basically like, "Well, with four or three grown up." younger sisters who are out in society you can hardly expect me to say how old i am she's 20 she's not that old she's baby she's, she's baby she's basically a teenager um but there's all these kind of like references to like whether you're out whether you're not out and this is where that comes from so they have their debut with the queen around age 18 oh. before being out they are treated as a child, and they're only allowed to socialize with family or close friends. They're not allowed to attend dances, dinners, parties. So one of the references in Bridgerton is that um, people who come over for like a dinner party at the Bridgerton household think it's really odd because all the children eat at the table. Children were not allowed to eat dinner at the table at their own house when there were guests over. <laughs> and even if there weren't guests over, if you were like a fancy person, the children would eat in the nursery with the nurse or their governess and they would go to bed and they the lived table. lives separate from the society that was happening outside the walls. They could go, you know, other than going to like church, they could go forever and like mm -hmm. never leave their house. 
Um, whereas an out in society girl would be chaperoned by a female relative and never left alone and certainly never left alone with a male other than her father or brothers. And women required parental permission to marry until age 21. Uh, I have written here, random fact, (laughs) Um, China, this term that I just saw come up, it has nothing to do with teenagers. Um, But I came across the term, uh, the century of humiliation, or the hundred years of national humiliation, Mm -hmm. which refers to the period in China between 1839 and the 1940s. And it just refers to the fact that they were defeated in like every war they fought in. But what a intense name for your time period i don't know well well yeah you call it that because as the the current ruling party you're like haha remember how bad it was under the other guys right remember the century of humiliation you wouldn't want that to happen again right guys you know what i'll pull it back to teens my entire teenage experience was a century of humiliation <laughs> <laughs> i mean couldn't that just be the slogan it's like teenagers the century of humiliation for your for these like six years well maybe we'll just like maybe we'll take a brief a brief moment to just <laughs> r.i.p teenagers what do you want to say to a teenager oh, it gets i mean better. frankly nothing i don't want to be near a teenager no yeah i think my chemical romance put it best when they said teenagers scared the living <laughs> dead of me i literally quoted that at the beginning of the last episode but yes that was so that long is- ago i've forgotten so but many things from that there is something um, and I'm totally stealing this idea once again from another podcast, but Karen Kilgariff of My Favorite Murder mm-hmm. and Do You Need a Ride and, you know, a billion other things um, once talked about how um, there is it is so hard to be a 13 year old girl because everything on the inside feels wrong. All of society feels wrong. Your parents don't get you. Your friends are strangers. Like it's just so hard. And, um, all the things that you like, the things that are made for you are ridiculed. Mm -hmm. Twilight, the fashion, your music comic books video games everything is just oh you enjoy um, this (laughs) oh teenage girls enjoy this like even talking about the difference between young adult literature if it has a female versus male protagonist like harry potter percy jackson hits universal acceptance for children everywhere things like the hunger games twilight that have female protagonists now you may argue that there are differences in the themes and differences in the whatever but being a teenage girl is so hard and let me tell you girl it gonna get better i mean being a teenage boy being a teenage person who is not in the gender binary is probably even harder um someday you're gonna grow up and you're gonna be able to do whatever you want and uh that's the end of it just do whatever you want yeah that's life that's life baby i i I think like I know what I was like as a teenager, and I thought I was a pretty good teenager when I was a teenager. And even looking back, like, oh, I could have been way worse. But oh, oh yeah. would I have not wanted to deal with teenage Bradley as a parent? <laughs> no, I mean, same. <laughs> I would have no idea. And that's part of the reason why, like, any hesitancy I have about having children is not about babies and toddlers. It's about, like, when they start becoming real people. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I just... feel like, I feel like, you know like five to 12 that's gonna be the golden time right because they're people 
they have personalities, they can do stuff, but they mm. ain't sassy yet. Oh, they're sassy. You don't hang out with five-year-olds. <laughs> they sassy at all, you know. The constant sass. <laughs> all times. Let me end that that belief real quick right now. Constant sass. Um, but if the sass levels of the children that I am referencing are as high as they are currently, just wait until they're 15. Yeah, yeah, like, I assume they're not trying to weaponize it right now, are they? Like, there's, like, innocent, naive, no filter. Oh, no, they know what they're doing. (laughs) They definitely know what they're doing. Like... I got nothing, then. My sister kicked me. Why did you kick him? I didn't kick him. Yeah, I lied because she mm. took the thing I wanted to play with and I wanted her to go on time out so that I would get to play with it. Or just anyway, they're fun, but they're Wilden. Um, speaking of Wilden, let's talk about Harriet Jacobs' autobiography, The Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, published <laughs> okay. in 1861. Uh, This gives us a very different perspective of life as a teenager. So in contrast to the upper class and noble girls in, uh, you know, fancy British society, having their debut with the queen and not being allowed to leave the house, um, slaves suffered brutality at the hands of their masters and were treated as less than human. And I know Mm. that that's news to everyone here, but it's true. I wanted, and this is kind of a bummer, but we're going to bring it back up. The roots of adultification in black children that we see today, that's like forcing black children into social, emotional, and physical adult roles before they are adults, has their has its root in slave trade. Children were separated from their families and required to grow up very quickly. Children Mm -hmm. and teens were sold at auctions. They were not protected by the child labor law movement because they were not seen as children. They were seen as animals. Mm -hmm. They were treated as property and livestock and were subject to breeding and scientific experimentation. And there was a belief that black children and teens were, quote unquote, less innocent than white children of the same ages. The belief that black bodies were more developed than white bodies, and they were believed to have an inferior mental capacity. And the phrase that is used is violent loss of childhood. I hate humanity sometimes. It's real bad. And I started this topic the research on this topic by looking at like oh jane austen pride and prejudice so there's like fancy dancy oh i'm so poor my father's house is entailed away to my male cousin and i felt like i couldn't do this topic justice if i glossed over the experience of teenagers who didn't live that life mm-hmm. because by and far population wise uh the majority of teenagers are not living like that yeah Even after the end of slavery in North America, quote unquote, indentured servants would be indentured through childhood into young adulthood and particularly in the domestic sphere. And I also want to note that the youngest child ever executed in the United States was age 12 and was a black girl. (laughs) Keeping it real heavy, um, we're going to go into the 20th century and we had talked about in part one, the invention of teenagers in America relating to burgeoning economic independence, mobility, and education. But this did not apply to all teenagers in America. Mm -hmm. For Black Americans, segregation was still going strong. 
teen boys in particular would suffer from false accusations of crimes and would be the subject of lynching. Many black teens fought in World War I and World War II but came home to lacking rights. The principles that they fought for and fought to protect overseas were not afforded to them when they came home. And education was an important element of the civil rights movement. In 1954, the landmark case Brown versus Board of Education Mm -hmm. ruled that segregation in public schools was a violation of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So federal courts order the desegregation of public schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. And nine black children are enrolled in Central High School. But Governor Pitbag Faubus... (laughs) Uh, I made up a bag. That's not his real name. We'll bleep that. But his name is Faubus of Arkansas orders the National Guard to prevent these nine black children from attending the high school that they were enrolled in. President Eisenhower made the National Guard part of the federal army, which like it's called the National Guard. How is it not already part of the federal army? But that's a question for another day. Yeah. So President Eisenhower sent a thousand soldiers from the U.S. Army to protect these children. And so in response, Governor Bag closed the schools, all the schools, to prevent black children from attending white schools. So approximately a year later, the U.S. Supreme Court finally ordered schools to reopen. Wait, were they closed for a whole year? For a whole year. Children of all races and genders in Little Rock, Arkansas, were prevented from receiving any education for a year because of a vocal bag. (laughs) I keep using this word. There's going to be a lot of bleeping in this episode who decided that black children attending schools with white children was worse than all children not receiving any education. (sighs) Some people. And, Access to education was still an issue throughout the rest of the 20th century and to the present, both in public schools and in higher university and college education. And I would be remiss to sit here pointing the finger at the United States and their failings for non-white children Mm -hmm. and not talk about indigenous children and teens in Canada. Mm -hmm. Because as you and I both know, as people who have gone through the Canadian school system, Residential schools operated in Canada from the 1880s to 1996. You say it's people who went through the school. We sure never learned about that school. Oh, I definitely did. But I think that may have been... So where my school was, was very close to one of the local reservations. Mm -hmm. And so we had... We would... would, That would be like our partner school for like doing events and like sports and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I I grew up in in Whitesville, population white. (laughs) For people who are not Canadians or are Canadians and are somehow unaware Mm -hmm. of this history. Yeah, I didn't know until like midway through my university career that that was really. Yeah, no. No, I definitely learned about this. Like, I would say, I want to say earlier than middle school. Hmm. Um, yeah, the first time I heard someone bring like that, that can't be correct that this happened that late. Yeah, 1996. Uh, yeah. You and I were both alive yeah. when the last residential school closed. So residential schools, again, for the people who don't know, they're like, what are you talking about? 
It was a system that forcibly removed indigenous children from their families and placed them in boarding schools where their language and culture were literally beaten out of them. Yeah. And they were indoctrinated into Euro-Canadian and Christian ways of living. And the best case scenario for these schools is education that brainwashes you into forgetting your entire family and your culture and takes away, you know, everything that reminds you of that, changes your clothes, changes your hair, forbids you from speaking the language that you know, you're not allowed to visit or speak to your family, you may never see your family again. And the education focuses mainly on prayer and manual labor. But as you can imagine, in a system that is designed to be inherently abusive, There's also rampant physical and sexual abuse in addition to the emotional and mental abuse that is happening. Um, I have an excerpt here, and of course, I don't have a citation for it. So that's concerning. (laughs) Residential Um, schools suck. I'm going to read it to you. Just because I, I was trying to explain this and... It's so hard to like find the words to say it right that I found this and I just wanted to like, you know, use that. Mm -hmm. The residential schools systematically undermined indigenous First Nations, Métis and Inuit cultures across Canada and disrupted families for generations, severing the ties through which indigenous culture is taught and sustained and contributing to a general loss of language and culture. Because they were removed from their families, many students grew up without experiencing a nurturing family life and without the knowledge and skills to raise their own families. The devastating effects of the residential schools are far-reaching and continue to have significant impact on Indigenous communities. The residential school system is widely considered a form of genocide because of its purposeful attempt from the government and the church to eradicate all aspects of Indigenous Indigenous cultures and life worlds. So this is not a fun fact, but again, the same thing with discussing the experience of Black teenagers in the United States. I felt that it was important to discuss the fact that the teenage experience of necking on Lover's Lane and reading Archie comics was not (laughs) universal. And then I have my takeaways here, and I promise we're going to go back up. But in terms of kind of like a meta-analysis of the process of doing this research, most of what I could find or access online focused on wealthy people and also on male teens, which is interesting because a lot of these articles and like the abstracts for papers, like peer-reviewed articles, referred generally to teens as one amorphous group. Mm But they're not distinguishing between the different experiences the different genders of people within that group would have. It was very difficult to find information about cultures which have been historically marginalized by colonialism, as you may guess. (laughs) For example, indigenous peoples living in what is known today as Africa, or sorry, what is known today as North America, um, people who are coming out of the African and uh, Caribbean culture, colonialism, slave trade situation. Any information that is available is in academic papers that is behind a paywall. So donate to Wikipedia. I donated to Wikipedia last week because it popped up. Oh, and you go. I was a little high and I was really emotional. And I was like, this is how we change the world. <laughs> My theory is that this is due to the fact that these cultures tend to record history via oral tradition like we talked about before, which is disrupted by colonialism, because when you separate children from their parents repeatedly across generations, knowledge is lost. And other things that I kind of saw as like themes and patterns throughout cultures all across the world and um, periods in history 
is that education for teens has almost always been about how the teen can serve society, Mm -hmm. not how society can serve the teen. And I think that is still true today. And the teenage experience, while it's different across time periods and cultures and demographic groups, there are a few things that are the same. Burgeoning financial independence, developing your own identity separate from parents and authority figures, and spearheading changes for better. Um, I think that there's also, across all of these different ages and cultures, um, an infantilization of teenagers and like an othering from adult social systems. Mm -hmm. So for example, when you hear people complain about like, oh, the TikTok teens today, or like nobody wants to work, that has happened all throughout history, all throughout cultures across the world. Even when they're like, you know, you better do your physical fitness in your gym class so that you can become a good military man. And then they're like, ah, teens today are full (laughs) of trash. But there's also a refusal from teenagers to accept the status quo and a willingness to do what is necessary to pave the way for what is right. That was a good line. I wrote that myself. (laughs) So at the forefront of advocate advocating for um lgbt like populations Mm -hmm. feminism fighting for reproductive access and economic equality the fight for racial justice has always had teenagers at the forefront at its height in the 1960s the civil rights movement involved a huge amount of teens and young adults and this was coined as the emmett till generation So Emmett Till was a 14-year-old black boy who was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi after being accused of offending a white woman. And around the same time after this happened, Freeman Hrabowski, who was 12 years old, was a black boy who was excited about the possibility of accessing better education through integrated schooling. And he attended the march in in the Birmingham Children's Crusade of 1963. He's 12 years old. All he wanted to do was learn math with white kids because he knew the teachers would know more. He was arrested and imprisoned and photos of police and dogs attaching, attacking the children and teens at this event drew nationwide attention. Teen Vogue today, which I assume that you're not as familiar with as I am. No. So when I was growing up, Teen Vogue was articles about like, how to do your makeup, how to do your nails, how mm-hmm. to kiss boys. <laughs> now... Teen Vogue publishes articles about how to protest safely and how to advocate for social justice issues. Wait, like now, like now, 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 like 2023 now, 2023 now, in June 2020, three teens from Katy, Texas, banded together to organize a protest and led hundreds of people in a march against racism and police brutality. And in March 2023, Protests in France drew hundreds of teens who looked to the strong history of French resistance for guidance for how to stand up for what they believe in. And I have a couple quotes here. This one is from a 17-year-old named Colleen Marigneau. The French are known for fighting and will fight. My mother goes to a lot of demonstrations. She says, if you have things to say, you should protest. Uh, Most recently in France... Nahil Merzouk, a 17-year-old of Moroccan and Algerian descent, was shot and killed by police on June 27, 2023. And thousands of teenagers have attended and been arrested at protests, and some have even received prison sentences. And if we go back to episode one and look at how I said that adults have been afraid of teenagers since their invention, this is obviously true. Going back before the invention of teenagers Mm -hmm. and 
not to put too fine a button on it, but I truly believe teenagers have been at the forefront of change and progress and modernization all throughout history, and they will continue to be. And I just hope, like, you know, we're close-ish to teenagers. We're closer to being teens than, like, we are to our parents' age. And I just hope that, Mm -hmm. like, when I am my parents' age, I don't fall into that, like, generational trap of assuming what is coming after you is somehow, like, lesser. Like, lazy teens or, like, TikTok teens, they don't know any skills, they don't take things seriously, nobody wants to work. But those are the people who are going to build the future that, like, our children live in. And... I mean, they're, they've done a pretty good job so far. <laughs> like, let's keep our fingers crossed for the future. Teens are at the forefront of change, no matter when and where you look in history. And I just think that that's really cool. And that's my presentation for you today. <laughs> it got really dark there at the end. It got really dark for a while, <laughs> but it's hopeful. Like... I don't want to give too many details because I don't want it to be like triangulating, but you are aware of the, just after I graduated from high school, um, Mm -hmm. teenagers at my high school protested the dress code because Mm. there was huge issues with the fact that like the dress code was sexist. And I remember when I was in high school, you know, you'd go to class with one teacher. I remember I was wearing a dress with spaghetti straps and I would go to class with one teacher and I was like, oh, cute dress. You go to class with a different teacher, you get written up, you get sent to detention, you get sent out of class, you get sent home. And so your education, particularly as a female student, is dependent on your Uh, ability to hide your body and not distract the teenage boys in the room Mm -hmm. apparently which i think is something like at this point we all know is like nonsense but i never would have thought to do anything about it because i would have just assumed like oh you know there's nothing you can do you age out of high school and then you know at least you can leave someday Mm. but the teenagers who came after me staged a massive protest that made at least headlines across our province, but I believe across our neighboring provinces and potentially mm-hmm. other places in Canada and had like, you know, staged probably one of the biggest protests we've had in our city's history and made changes. Those rules no longer exist because those teenagers said, this isn't right. And we refuse to accept it. And I just, I think that that's really cool. I think teenagers do scare the crap out of me because they're very scary and i feel like every time i'm near them they're always talking about me and i assume it's not flattering but i'm like i'm on your side guys i'm a cool grown-up i know about tiktok that's no cap bro you tried i did try i did try i'm very hip and relevant it's only a little sus anyway i oh we don't have any follow-up because this entire episode is follow-up yeah i um I have a couple of things I jotted down. Okay. So, yeah, I, I did confirm that, yeah, so 1853, 1854 is when the U.S. pulled the trade with us or else thing mm. with Japan. And, and that whole thing just kind of generally called gunboat diplomacy, which is where you park a bunch of, like, naval ships offshore and you're like, hey, sure would suck if you didn't trade with us, you know, classic mafia shakedown stuff. <laughs> uh, and that's how you wind up with, with fun things like the opium wars in China. Mm. 
and uh, and so on and so forth. Actually, for the first time ever, we can allude to what next week's podcast is. The first time ever, I alluded to this podcast last week. Uh, okay, sorry, but this is like a, a part one, part two. Yeah, this is a part one, part two. Yeah, next week. Um, now I know that maybe in our first Ask a Nerd episode, we did not particularly seem incredibly prepared to do that episode. Oh, because we weren't. Because it was an emergency. Uh, not an emergency, but it was like a last minute. It was a game time. It was a life circumstance. Now, when I tell you that the guest on next week's Ask a Nerd episode came super prepared, that would be an understatement. So we're going to cut out the Lord of the Rings section, put it in a separate podcast. Next week's Ask a Nerd, if you love teenagers and you love um, comic books and you love one teenager in particular... Peter Parker, uh, you're going to love next week's episode. Yeah. Make sure to write in the comments. I love PP. I don't think you want to write that. Also, I, I don't think we have comments. Uh, but what we do comments. have is a poll up on our Spotify. Because we do? I would, yes, I've set up a poll. Because I would like to know, listeners, do you prefer the longer episodes? Do you make do it you to the end? Do you prefer a shorter episode? I know for me personally, there's no podcast episode could be too long, frankly. That's my personal feeling. Um, But I'm just kind of interested in collecting a little data. Do you want a 20-minute episode? Because we're not going to do it. But if you wanted like a 45-minute episode, that might be be on the table. So um, your homework, uh, support teenagers, watch Lord of the Rings, Mouthman, and... Uh, see you next week (laughs) see you next week if you like this episode feel free to subscribe and leave us a review you can find us at fun fact collectors on instagram and twitter if you have suggestions for future episodes or just want to share your favorite fun fact feel free to send us an email at headnerds at funfactcollectors.com if you're interested in learning more about today's topic check out the show notes this has been fun fact collectors see you next week see you next week Wow.